My name is Suzanne Legrand. My guest is clinical psychologist Dr. Anita Johnston, who specializes in eating disorders and women's issues in her private practice. She also is the author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationships with Food Through Myth, Metaphor, and Storytelling. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about what disordered eating is and why it's so prevalent among women? Well, basically, disordered eating is eating in a way that's troublesome to you, which can include uh, not eating when you are hungry or eating when you're not hungry or continuing to eat when you're full. Um, and, and, of course, we all do that at some point or another. But it becomes disordered when it becomes really troublesome and, and food starts to take on a bigger place in your life than you would like for it to. Why is that? Why mm. is it so prevalent right now? We're, we're, we live in a diet culture that, that basically teaches us to disregard our natural hunger and satiety signals because um, we're given messages that there's only a right way to look and the right size to have. And, and if you don't, then you need to control your food in some ways. And so that can really just set all of us off into obsessing and preoccup being preoccupied with food. But then there's another layer also that we also live in a culture that's really so so literate so that we don't understand that there's lots of different kinds of hungers that we can have. And so there can be hungers for connection or hungers to be soothed, hungers to be accepted. And all of these different kinds of hungers, we don't really even have words for, sort of like, you know, the Inuits have a lot of different words for, for snow and we just have snow. And so what happens is that we get confused and we turn to food as a way to satisfy um, those other kinds of hungers. Your work started at, in your private practice, and you were seeing mm. a lot of women who had some similar problems or issues around food and disordered eating. What did you notice were the commonalities yeah, well, this was way back. This is way back in the early 1980s. So there really wasn't a lot written about eating disorders and, and not even the word disordered eating. I had never even seen that used before. And so what what happened is I started just really paying attention. I had created a center with a couple other women because we started to see there were a lot of eating disorders uh, in the community. But then, basically, I just started listening as carefully as I could to those individuals who showed up for help. And typically, they were female back then, even though they came from all walks of life and all different ethnicities and all different sizes. Their struggle was around eating food and body image. And so I just was listening as carefully as I could to the stories that they told me. And what I discovered was the common denominator that they all had was that they were very emotionally sensitive and highly intuitive. Now, in, in my mind, those are really fabulous qualities to have, but they're not fabulous if you, if you grow up in a culture that devalues and dismisses and, and doesn't even teach you how to work with that and instead says, oh, you're overreacting or you're too sensitive or just get over it. And so what happened is they got this idea that, that they needed to find some way to fit in 
And because they were confusing what they were really hungry for, which was a sense of belonging, with fitting in. And and so with fitting in, that's when you try to look like and act like and think like and feel like how you think others think you ought to look and think and feel and act. And the problem with that is that you get disconnected from your true self and you get even more hungry for a sense of belonging because belonging requires being connected to yourself while you connect with others. So again, then this got all played out in the food arena because as I had said earlier, they got that kind of hunger confused. And also it seems that a common solution that people who experience disordered eating are offered is to just stick with a good eating plan, right? Uh, just stick with a yeah. diet. What's wrong right. with that as a solution? Well, that's wrong with that is it's not the problem. <laughs> First of all, um, the research has shown over and over and over and over again, diets don't work that um, 90% of anyone that goes on a diet is going to gain the weight back, and 95% gains back more. But we're not taught this. And so we're, we start to think, well, then there's something wrong with us. That's the problem is that we, I can't stick to a diet or I don't have enough willpower when, in fact, our bodies are not designed to go on these kinds of diets. And, again, the, the problem isn't the food. So this is where the idea of a red herring comes in. And a red herring is a term that you find used in, in literature, like mm, um, who, who killed the old lady? Is it the maid, the butler, or the chauffeur? And everybody's watching the maid because she's unusual. She's strange. She's not, you know, acting like everybody else. And, and so you're following this whodunit mystery. And, and then at the end, there's a twist. And it was the butler who nobody suspected because everyone's watching the maid. Well, in this instance... Um, the maid, just like the food, is the red herring. It's the distracting element that's taking you away from what the real problem is. So the real problem might be, oh, maybe you have a love-hate relationship with your mother, or maybe your boyfriend just ditched you, or maybe you're on a career path that doesn't serve you, or there could be any number of things going on. But if you discover that you can use food to distract yourself or numb yourself or thoughts about food, even if you're not eating it, which is what happens when you go on a diet, then what happens is the real issues never get resolved. And so you keep trying harder and harder through eating behaviors or thoughts about food. So it's it's really a no-win situation. And the worst part of it is the person who's struggling thinks they're the problem or they've got a problem. And yet this is a solution that is really pushed from every part of society. It's interesting that it. we're, we're being offered a solution that we know doesn't work. Well, because there's lots of people making money off of that. Mm -hmm. The diet industry is just raking it in. And, and unfortunately, even those in the helping professions, the medical professions, they have been caught up in this Trance. It's really, it's sort of like uh, uh, as well. They're not looking at the data that, that, that will tell you that um, it's ridiculous to try to um, uh, solve this problem through eating behaviors. Some of the things that you mentioned are underlying disordered eating um, are complex, right? The desire to mm -hmm. belong, for example, yes. in a world yes. where many of us are isolated. Yes. I'm wondering if dieting also is kind of an easier fix. 
In some ways, it gives us a plan to something we can do where otherwise it's if you're in a dead end career or you would like more connection, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. do you how do you get that? Right. So it's an um, a simpler fix. It's not an easier fix because it doesn't work. But it appears, uh, and, and that's part of the attraction. How many times have you heard, heard someone say, "Well, just do this, just follow this, and everything will be fine." Well, we start to believe that. So what has to happen is you have to be able to look at the struggle with food, recognize that there's something beneath it. There's something subterranean um, that needs to be cleared. So it's sort of like a weed. If you just cut it off at the top, given the right circumstances, it's going to come right back. But if you can go down and find the root issues and clear that, then it's a done deal. So so the idea is that, um, and the ir- irony is, that the struggle with food will take you where you need to go. But there's this saying, um, an old Zen saying, don't get stuck looking at the finger pointing to the moon. Look at the moon. So the struggle with food is pointing you towards something, something else. And, um, uh, and, and it's, it's not that difficult to find what it is, but it is complicated because it, you have to learn a different language um, so that the first thing you have to do is you have to really um, reconnect with your instincts, which dieting teaches you to disconnect. Dieting teaches you to disregard your hunger and satiety signals. So one of the first things you have to do, I, I kind of use the metaphor of um, two tanks. So there's tank A and tank B. And, and tank A, if you can imagine that we have two tanks within us, Tank A is the tank that we fill when we need physical nourishment, and we fill it with food. And in order to do that, you have to be able to read your body. You have to be able to read your hunger and satiety signals. Um, uh, Unfortunately, many of us, because we've grown up in diet culture, we've been taught to disregard those signals, so we don't even know the sensation of hunger. And it's there, it's inside of us, but it's quite subtle, and it's uh, the sensation of hunger isn't, I feel like pizza, right? That's the thought. The sensation is a contraction or an expansion or heaviness or lightness or roughness or smoothness or hollowness or identity, right? It's a physical sensation. And we have them. It's a matter of relearning how to pay attention to the sensation that tells us we're hungry and the sensation that tells us we're full. And this can take a while. There's a little simple technique you can do, which is every time um, you're reaching for food, you ask yourself, am I hungry? If the answer is yes, you look inside your body to find the sensation. And then you take two bites. And then you ask yourself again, am I still hungry? If the answer is yes, you say, how do I know I'm hungry? You find that sensation and you take two more bites. And you just keep going two bites at a time. Until eventually when you say, am I still hungry? The answer is no. And you say, oh, how do I know I'm not hungry? And you look for a physical sensation, an expansion, and a, a contraction, a coolness, a warmth, a movement, a stillness, something that tells you you're no longer hungry. And so to, to clear disordered eating, you have to be able to rule out tank A, your hunger and satiety signal. Um, let's, say, let's say you've learned this. You've figured this out. You know what it feels like when you're hungry. You know what it feels like when you're full. You're reaching for the pizza. You check in. <laughs> Not a hunger signal in sight. But you still want to eat that pizza. 
Well, guess what? You've now just tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and landed smack dab in Tank B. And in Tank B, pizza's not pizza. Food is not food. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and maybe don't even know about. The thing is, the hunger is coded. So in order to find out what it is, you have to learn how to crack the code. And again, the irony that I mentioned before is the food will help you. So to crack the code, you ask yourself, okay, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? Now, um, you do a scan of your day. Maybe I'm still um, ticked off at the person who cut me on the freeway. Or maybe I'm worried about an upcoming parent-teacher meeting. Or maybe, maybe I'm uh, uh, upset with something my husband said or concerned about a comment made by my coworker. You do a scan of the day just to see, is there a feeling that I'm trying not to feel? Because we don't eat for emotional reasons. We typically don't want to feel our emotions, right? So you do a scan, and but I'm, I'm here to tell you, more often than not, when you do this scan, the answer you'll get is, mm-hmm, I feel fine, I feel okay, because those feelings may be unconscious, which means they're simply out of your awareness. So the good news is, the food can can tell you what it is. But it, again, it's talking in code and you have to crack the code. So if you like, I'm, I can tell you how to do that. I would love to know. Something. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So the way it works is this. The foods are talking to you, but they're talking in the language of metaphor. And so the way it works is sweet foods usually have to do with either feeling like you're not sweet enough or there's not enough sweetness in your life. Crunchy, salty foods are typically connected to unexpressed anger and frustration. You know, like you want to chew someone's head off. Warm foods usually are associated with a longing for emotional warmth, you know, soups and stews, that sort of thing. Um, Spicy foods are often connected to a desire or a fear of um, excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate, well, we know that one with Valentine's Day coming up, right? It's, it's romance and sensuality and sex. So, so the way it works, I'll give you an example. I had a, had a client and she was, struggling with, um, she was struggling with bulimia. And I had asked her, I said, well, if there was one food that you wished you could eat and have absolutely no consequences whatsoever, what would that food be? And she said, oh, it'd be vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. And I said, okay. Now I want you to imagine I've never had vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top, and you're going to tell me what's so fabulous about it. And she said, well, it's sweet, it's smooth, and it's refreshing. And when we took a look at a little closer look, we, we looked more subterranean, we looked deeper, um, basically, what that was saying is is that she was um, struggling with her boyfriend. He was accusing her of not being sweet enough. She had hit a rough patch with her parents that she was desperately wanting to smooth out. And she was in a dead-end job in need of a refreshing change. One food and a lot of information there. So that's kind of how it works. 
Wow, that's fascinating. And so once... Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So once she has those insights, mm-hmm. how does she apply those to yes. changing her behavior? Or, yep. I mean, those are complicated Perfect. things, mm-hmm. meeting her actual needs. Yes. yes. So there's one skill that covers a lot of bases and is so potent, is so powerful in recovery from disordered eating that, you know, I've been doing this for 35 years. I've seen thousands, thousands and thousands totally, completely clear their struggle, but I've never seen anyone do it without this skill. And this is the skill of assertive communication, which is basically the capacity to communicate honestly and directly and clearly and kindly. So it's basically a way to to speak your truth in the kindest way possible. And and so it, it, with this particular instance, let's say, for example, with this particular client, um, with her boyfriend, she might say things like, you know, when you say things like that, I feel really sad because it gives me the impression you think that I'm not sweet enough. And then that opens the door for real honest communication, right? One sentence. Um, uh, you know, with her parents. Um, it might take the form of, um, you know, when, when you um, tell me that I'm not doing anything right, I feel really hurt because it gives me the impression that you're, you're criticizing me and not letting me know how you're feeling about this situation. One sentence. See, um, that when you can learn to communicate like that, it can clear a lot of things that you've been either trying to stuff down or numb out with eating behaviors. It's true. It's, it's a skill. Mm-hmm. It takes practice. And it also strikes me that it requires perhaps unlearning some codependent behaviors. I mean, if if what you're saying about many of the women who developed eating disorders is that they try to fit themselves to other people, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. it seems there's, and this is true, I think, for, for some women, that they are socialized to think about other people's needs and emotions, and sometimes to the exclusion of knowing what their own are. Totally. That's why this skill is so useful. It's the opposite of codependent behavior, is communicating assertively, because you are honoring and respecting your needs and feelings while you're still respecting the needs and feelings of others. Mm -hmm. But you're certainly not acting as though your needs and feelings don't count. Your work um, has a lot to do with decoding myths and fairy tales and also the language of metaphor to help women Mm -hmm. understand the deeper causes of disordered eating. Mm -hmm. What can metaphors and myths and fairy tales tell us about our own lives and how to solve kind of longstanding problems? 
Well, often, you know, when we have long-standing problems, we have a lot of shame around that. Like, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? Or I'll, I'll never get over this. Or I'm really screwed up or I'm bo- broken or damaged goods. So what happens with a, with a story or, or with a metaphor, it gives you a little distance from that. And so that you can get a new perspective. So I'll, I'll share with you one of my favorite metaphors. It's my favorite because I get letters from all over the world, people saying, oh, this helped me shift my my um, thought process. And so um, the, the metaphor is imagine, because here you use the faculty of your imagination. Imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip and you fall in, and you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids. And along comes a big log, and, and you grab on, and the log saves your life, and, and it keeps your head above water when surely you would have drowned. And eventually it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And, and from there you can see the riverbank, but you can't get there because you're holding on so tight to the log that you can't even swim. Now, here's a perfect example of what happens with eating behaviors, right? We, we grab onto it, and then we find we can't let go. And to make it more complicated... There's, there's always someone on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, and you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of the log. Well, the way I see it is letting go of the log may not be the best thing to do initially because what happens if you let go of the log from the shore, get halfway there, and realize, oh, shoot, I don't have the strength to make it? Well, that means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either, and you're really sunk. And I believe we have a wise part of ourselves that will not will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. So what do you do instead? Well, you let go of the log and you um, practice floating. And when you start to sink, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you try treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you swim around it once, grab back on, twice, grab back on, 10 times, 100 times, 200 times. Whatever it takes for you to have strength and confidence to let go of the log, then you let go of the log. So, so this metaphor introduces the idea that, that there is a skill set that needs to be developed in order for you to stop doing whatever it is you're doing in your struggle with eating and food. You're not wrong for not let, just letting go of it because why would you until you've developed another way of getting your needs met? So that's kind of how metaphor works. It, it, it introduces an, an idea um, without heaping you with tons of shame. The title of your book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, is part mm-hmm. of this approach. And you mm-hmm. talk in the book about the Light of the Moon Cafe. Could you speak a little mm-hmm. bit about what that is? Yeah, well, so for years people had asked me, because that book has been around a long time, like 20 years, it, why don't you do a workbook? And honestly, every time I thought about it, it seemed boring to me. But then I, I have a friend and colleague, a dietitian, who said, hey, do you think we could do this online? We could create like an online women's circle workbook for, for eating the light of the moon. And I thought, well, I don't know, but let's try and that was back in 2013, and we've been, you know, I've been doing it ever since. So, what the Light of the Moon Cafe is, and anyone can check it out, lightofthemooncafe.com. It's um, I, I have interact. There's a couple of different courses. One is is sort of a do-it-yourselfer, a self-study called Cracking the Hunger Code. That is, if someone wants to learn how to do what I just was talking about today, or decode the the food, you can just sign up and take this self-study course. But then I have the, um, 
the interactive courses, which are eight weeks long with activities every single day and women around the world. And um, we have a forum. We have live calls and we have a forum. And I respond to every single comment and every single question on the forum. And it's really pretty cool because it's a whole bunch of women helping each other. And the support is unbelievable, helping each other figure this out. And, And with the focus being on what those underlying issues might be, and then what you need to do to to clear them. So it's really it's my, my it's the love of my life. I really enjoy um, going to the cafe and connecting with all these women. You've been doing this work for thirty five years, did mm-hmm. you say? Yeah, yeah, I've been around a while. <laughs> what have you learned? now that you didn't know when you began this work? That, that those who struggle with uh, disordered eating and they go down the recovery path and clear it, they're the people the world has been waiting for. Because right now, the world needs people that are not just emotionally sensitive but highly intuitive, but know how to work with it. Um, because what comes with that is an incredible amount of empathy and compassion, and that's what the world needs today. So what I know now is that these are the folks, and that's why I feel honored and privileged to be helping individuals learn how to work with their sensitivity in a way that, that brings so much to the planet. So I have been speaking today with Dr. Anita Johnston, who is a clinical psychologist specializing in eating disorders and women's issues, and also the author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationship with Food Through Myth, Metaphors, and Storytelling. Thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Get up! Get up! Mm-hmm.